Welcome to the Next Level Show, where we talk with people behind Next Level ideas, products and technology, changing the world around us. I'm Lubo Smith, the co-founder and CEO of STRV. And my guest today is Gary Pola, the co-founder and CEO of BlockTorch, a Web3 end-to-end observability platform giving users the superpowers to run decentralized apps reliably in production. By the end of 2022, Web3 developer activity increased by almost 500%. In this episode, Gary and I look at specific struggles these engineers deal with, from handling errors to understanding system data, and why Web3 tooling seems to be behind the times. So let's dive right in. Well, we just briefly chatted before hitting the record button that you attended just last weekend. The spot in Prague and I missed you. So sad that we can't be recording this in person, but still very curious to learn more about your journey and chat about all things Web3 and what you think of the power of blockchain and what led you to the space as well. Totally. Thanks for having me, Lugo. And the next time we'll, it will be in person in Prague in the STRV office and we can, we can do it face to face. It can be in person in Prague. It can be in person at a different place in the world as well. I don't really mind. I know that we both travel quite a bit. So <laughs> let's see where we meet next. But we are here today to talk about your latest endeavor, and that is BlockTorch and the journey to Web3. And you were around different kinds of dev tools and infrastructure for quite a while, right? So what led you to team up with Amin and start BlockTorch? What were some of the initial pointers where you see, okay, something like that could really find place in the world? So Amin and I both are like strong believers in the future of decentralized technology and decentralized applications, not only crypto or not only like the current applications that we see today built on blockchains and other decentralized architecture, but really like probably applications and use cases that we today actually cannot really imagine. And I think the first things we are seeing, for example, today are trends like trying to decentralize the the, the data for training LLM models and so on, like, this is something that hasn't really been around like two or three years ago, right? And so we are very, very strong believers in the future of decentralized technology and that this will be a key part in, in like Web3 and the next kind of like wave of how we're going to interact digitally with the world. But we also saw the very, very important piece of developer tooling in actually enabling that future. And we have ourselves seen the impact of observability tooling on the cloud and in like an application with a lot of microservices and, and like an architecture with lots of microservices, the importance of data accessibility in the centralized application world, which is much more trivial than in the decentralized application world, where data is stored decentralized and on, on a lot of nodes and data accessibility is much harder. And so managing and understanding your application's data is much harder. And that's exactly where we started and said, okay, we want to play a part in enabling the growth of this future of, of the internet. And we believe observability needs to be there and needs to be kind of like as intuitive and easy to use for developers so that they can focus on building the applications and not on kind of like building some indexing pipelines and data pipelines and then stacks themselves to understand what the hell is going on. Yeah, I think that we are at a very interesting point in time where 
the Web3 developer activity increased by almost 500%, and it's very heavily growing. There is almost 5 million smart contracts deployed. And like, we see that, like, of course, like, there is a lot of stuff that is being built, but also there is plenty of obstacles that I think are limiting a broader mass of people to enter the space. And I would love to learn more about your perspective. I've talked to many people and heard many different opinions about what is holding us back from a bigger adoption of decentralized world or however we call it. And we definitely see that there is a little bit of downturn, maybe not a little bit, maybe a lot, <laughs> actually. But when it comes to like what developers are doing, what the startups are building, there is still a lot of activity that is happening. My, my personal opinion in terms of like where we are and, and what it needs really is that we, as, a, as an ecosystem in total, need to start really thinking about more about like value to the, to the end user, not only in terms of like some monetary value with like tokens of, and trading it or whatever, but like actually perceived value of like using decentralized applications in all its form. And I think we went very much from like a beginning and, and still are in that, in that phase, I believe, where we are trying to build cool stuff technologically with rather limited kind of like focus on is this going to provide a, a value and a sustainable value for a large audience so that they're going to use it for long term, similar to like what we have seen like in the whole development of like social apps with like network effects. So, so network effects are a strong value at the end of the day, right? To to the end user, and I think we believe. So, I think we need to kind of like move into like a phase where, as an ecosystem in total, we stop purely thinking about okay, what cool tech can we build with it, and 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 kind of like what are maybe the biggest obstacles technologically, and try to overcome that. But also, what do we really need to to add value? And a lot of people are speaking about like yeah. The design and the UX is not that great. And so these are, of course, all things that need to improve. But I think we also really need to come down to the core. Are we providing value to potentially a billion users in the future? Or is it more of like a gimmick or a nice to have or like a niche or like we really need to broaden our horizon on user centricity? Yeah, you, you call it adding value. I call it solving a problem or like figuring out what's the what's the use case right and i feel like this is genuinely something that needs to happen otherwise yes it 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 was great when you know the like crypto world was growing everybody was jumping on board but not jumping on board for the right reasons or certainly not for the right reasons for me the Number one thing why I like the space is that I believe in the power of blockchain. I believe in the power of decentralization. I don't feel that this is a way how to make a, a quick flip, how to earn a lot of money, how to build the most sophisticated Ponzi scheme that will yield the big results, right? But the power of technology in terms of security, robustness, decentralization, and all of those aspects, that's why I like it. And that's why I feel like, yes, the technology is there and it's great, but I think we need to 
think very, very deeply about what are all the use cases, what are all the things that we can do with that. And I think that we also have a little bit of a lack of quality and maybe more focus on funding and and the finance side of things rather than building great tools and building for great use cases. I fully agree with you. I think I think there is a way too big group that does not focus on, on, on actual value, like solving real problems. And if we think about it, like reducing friction in the global financial system, being able to, to bank the unbanked population of the world, giving data ownership back to, to the user and, and many other things like also reputation and things like that, that you can build on chain. All these things are actually really, really great and and they're like very positive they can have a very positive impact on on the future of society but like it has to be built in a way that the user also really perceives that this this is a problem and that he's solving or that the the tool is solving a problem for the user but yeah i I fully agree like we we need to overcome the the phase and there are a lot of teams that, that really try hard to achieve that and i think we need to put those teams more in the spotlight and also investors i think investors need to be held accountable as well like investors also need to start kind of like backing more of those teams and think about those trades and not just kind of like, okay, how can we make some quick return? Yeah. Now diving more into what BlockTorch is and how you try to tackle the space, what are some of the problems that you're trying to address with the product? Yes. So the main problem that we're trying to solve with BlockTorch is the whole topic of data accessibility. And with that, basically building depths that can scale reliably. So the whole point of observability is to give engineers the right data and information so that they can, on the one hand, handle errors in a minimum time period, so solve them as fast as possible. In the best case, before any user or a certain amount of users is impacted by that error. And on the other hand, equipping them with the right data to take data-driven decisions on the future roadmap of their product. And today, there is simply a lot of inefficiencies in that process where a lot of like the pieces of, of the process of gathering that information, understanding that information, and then taking a conclusion or, or drawing a conclusion from that information is very manual. It's very fragmented. There are a lot of tools doing kind of like pieces of, of, of this journey and process and a lot of tools that are not built for that specific kind of problem or, 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 or kind of like engineering effort, but are still used for that because they are the only ones that somehow provide the data in some form. And we are trying to be one platform where engineering teams can really see end-to-end all information about their systems in their decentralized application. So we always like to say a transaction today in, the, in, the most, in, in most people's perception it's just a thing that you can see in a block explorer, you know, like just the kind of like, okay, it was pending at some point and then it got mined and then it's done. We always say a transaction starts in the front end with the user interacting with your decentralized application and it moves through various layers of the stack until the whole user journey of this transaction is actually done. And you try to tell the full story or give the full data for the full story of the full transaction to the engineer. And like you mentioned the layers and of course, like if you just look at a transaction as one record on the blockchain, that's something totally different than when you actually like break it down to like 
the individual layers, right? When user is interacting with ideally some sort of UI, right? No one goes and writes data directly to a smart contract, or at least majority of the people will not be doing that, right? We are used to having these user interfaces and not all of us are experienced programmers and engineers that can go interact with Blockchain Explorer directly and like write and read data right away. Uh, but we need those, those pieces of UI to interact, to see what's happening, to get feedback and so on. So how, uh, how do you actually try to reflect that in your product? So maybe first one point is, in general, often there is a UI or usually there is a UI and most people interact with it with, through the UI. However, you can also interact with a smart contract through another smart contract, for example. That's also a piece of information that's actually crucial. Because if you build a decentralized application and you build a UI for it and you believe all your transactions or the majority of your user interactions on chain are triggered through your UI, but actually it's not the case, then, well, maybe you should know that this is not the case and you should understand where are these transactions coming from and maybe some other protocol is integrating with you because maybe you should pivot your product from like an end user facing tool to like a protocol for, for others to build on, right? So this is like one of the pieces of information that you would need to take data driven decisions actually to find like your product market fit or whatever, you know. How we how we do it is so we see the different layers or different components in the stack as data source. And it doesn't really matter for us like which chain. So we're supporting multiple chains by now. If it's the UI, we have like an SDK for that. We are working already on 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 ways to also integrate with like Oracles or or decentralized data storages like IPFS. And all of that for us is like each of it is a data source within a stack, and then we are building a full trace of this asset journey and full story of the transaction. And we're doing that in a way that it is interoperable with the open telemetry standard, which is observability data format from Web2. And basically, all Web2 observability tools are open telemetry ready. And in general, Web3 data is not. And so this is one part of how we make sure that the full stack the devs are using especially if it's like a web 2.5 application which let's be honest today most of them are it's it's basically interoperable with also web 2 data what you mentioned uh, like really resonates with me in a way that the interoperability of the blockchain is where the beauty where i see the beauty that it's not that you would have a product in the web two terms, right? And there is one way how to interact with, with that product and that is through the UI. But considering that it's an open platform and it's powered by a smart contract, there is a lot of different ways how it can be integrated into other applications, other tools, into other user interfaces. And so, so I, I totally get the point that you want to have an insight into What's actually happening with your decentralized application? Where are like you know users in a way, right? I, I'm not sure if you call it users, but like where are the requests coming in, right? Where are the tr transactions coming in? Exactly, exactly. And I mean, another topic there, for example, is also let's say you're supporting multiple wallets for your users to interact with your with your application. Maybe your users only use a specific type of wallet, and maybe the others you don't really need by now, or, or maybe a specific wallet keeps causing errors in your application and, and you kind of like should figure that out. You only see in the block explorer, you have failing 
okay, you have failing transactions, but where is the root cause for that failing transaction? You know, maybe it's a wallet, maybe it's a bug in the front end, maybe it's a congestion on the chain, and some totally other team just is kind of like causing troubles for everyone else. So there are like a lot of different reasons why, why things might not work as they should. And also, as I said, like you might want to actually think about how you want to keep developing your, your product and your roadmap. And for that, you need data to actually understand what, what the hell is happening. We have gone down the rabbit hole of BlockTorch and how it really works and functions. But what I would love to learn more about is also the inception, right? How you got started and what is the mission that you are trying to to pursue so maybe starting with the mission <laughs> so, so the mission for us really is to enable web3 or or contribute to the scaling of web3 so we also believe like many other builders in the space we should get to a point where there are like a billion users in web3 and to get there we believe one piece is ensuring scalability and reliability and we believe it makes most sense to equip engineers and through that have a leverage, like not take an application or build an application ourselves and make it as scalable and reliable as possible, but basically providing tools to engineers so that all of them can, can achieve that. So that's the mission for us. Our inception story is that Amin and I, we met through an incubation program, you could call it, or they call themselves talent investors called Entrepreneur First. Um, so we, we met through that program and clicked very fast, like we very quickly kind of realized, okay, we are both interested in Web3, we are both interested in kind of like that mission of making sure that Web3 really becomes mass market ready. And and we also kind of realized that in terms of personalities, we like challenges that are maybe a bit controversial to to what our past red line in life would be. And and so we said like, this is a challenge that is really intriguing for us and that we really want to solve. And that's, that's how we started working on it. And from there, things moved quickly. <laughs> so like you, you mentioned that it seems like you wanted to go a little bit outside of your comfort zone with building the next thing. And I think what you are building right now is a really complex product, probably very hard to explain to majority of the people. I feel like I am getting a sense uh, and I am like deep in tech, but like, do you see challenges explaining people what you build and what you're going after, or like you feel like people get it and uh, and they are fine with it, or do you just focus on like specific niche and in within, for example, a Web three niche, people understand, people need it, and it's all clear, and you don't venture outside much. I think it really much depends on who we are speaking to. So to categorize them, so if we're speaking to our customer profile, like our ICP, they are engineers in Web3, and they face the trouble of understanding Web3 data on a daily basis. So if we kind of like speak to them, they very quickly understand, okay, what, what are we actually providing? Of course, then there are nuances to it, like they're like, oh, but how is this different to X or how is this different to Y? And then we go deeper into that. The other group of people are like the investors. and like in the investor ecosystem, I would say the, the bigger majority is non-technical in terms of like not having been software engineers prior to becoming an investor. So for them, the metaphor or kind of like the, the, the example of what Datadog achieved, and Datadog is a very prominent company that a lot of investors know because they're like having an incredible story and like incredible success. 
So most of them kind of understand what Datadog somehow did or, and is doing. So they kind of understand with that kind of metaphor or analogy what we're doing. So the third group, I would say, are like the ones that, that are neither very familiar with observability in the two world from like investment standpoint or whatever, and, and neither are also not technical. With them, I personally perceive that the best way of explaining it is giving them the, the example of going to a doctor and having an EKG, like a heart rate monitoring. And there I'm telling them like, this is pretty much the same, the data, like your heart beat is a data source that is measured through the device of the AKG. And then the doctor can draw conclusions from that on, on your health and, and your, your kind of like current situation. And it's, this is pretty much what we do. We take a data source, like a heart rate. In that case, it's like data from systems of an application. And we basically transpose it and, and, and visualize it. And then instead of a doctor looking at it, it's the engineer looking at it. And then the engineer can draw conclusions from it. And it usually works. You usually kind of get what we're doing when I, when I explain it like that. You mentioned that it was difficult to describe what you were after to some of the investors. And like you've been around for a little over a year now, uh, managed to raise 4.2 million in seed round, if I'm not mistaken. And uh, I would love to hear how, what was the initial fundraising like and what you had to go through because it seems like, yes, you have managed to raise a great round of investment. Was it still at the time when it was relatively easy to raise in Web3 or the opposite? Because I think that over the past 12 months, we have seen a huge shift on that side. So just just to hear your perspective on the fundraising game and maybe like it seems like the Datadog example really helped you to illustrate to the investors what you are after. Yeah, I think so an experience we had is that there are kind of like two groups of investors we spoke with. And sometimes these two groups are in the same fund, but it's like two different people within the same fund. The ones that are familiar or not familiar, but at least are curious about Web3 and they have already done deals maybe in Web3 and they certainly understand Web3 or they're purely a Web3-focused fund. So they, the only thing they do day in, day out is talking to Web3 founders. And the other ones are more of like the generalists that in general invest in software companies or in developer tooling companies more specifically, but are not super Web3-focused. And the discussion with these two groups is, is very different always, like it was for us at least. Because the latter one, you always come to the point of like, but why Web3? Why do we need that? What's the purpose of Web3? Is that in general something that has a future? While they need, the first ones, so the ones that actually invest in Web3 a lot and like are, are very familiar with Web3, they already bought into the same vision of the future that I described at the beginning of how we're going to interact with the internet and what the internet is going to be in the future. And so with them, the discussion always was a very different one of the details of, okay, what exactly are we trying to solve? What's the exact problem? How is it different to certain other players? Why have others maybe tried and failed with the same approach that we are now trying to do? How are we overcoming certain challenges that they have seen with other teams in Web3? So I think these were two very different conversations and we, we tackled them and navigated them very differently. And, and I think that was, that was also successful in a way that we knew who is our audience and how do we need to speak to that specific audience. The, the question on like the, 
easy versus hard. I think in general, it's probably never easy, I would say, to fundraise. For us specifically, we started the fundraise when the world was a bit more sunny in Web3. It wasn't the hype, like it was It was the last autumn. So the whole Terra Luna collapse already happened, you know, like there was already a lot of like caution in the market, but it wasn't as bad as today. And then kind of like in the process of closing things and going through the whole process of fundraising, FTX, the FTX scandal happened. And with that, of course, a lot of funds stopped fully investing in any Web3 companies. A lot of funds kind of like started, said, okay, no, we, we kind of like need to see what's going on, what's next, how many other big players are going to fall. Um, and, and with that, of course, things got a bit more challenging and a bit more roller coaster like. But at the end of the day, the investors that were interested in working with us and we were interested in working with them, they, they kept their words. They were like very supportive throughout the process. They were always open and available to speak to us. So at the end of the day, I think that made it better in terms of like the experience because there was, there was a trust relationship. And I think actually it was a good kind of starting point for the investor founder relationship because we knew we can count on them. So let's say I want to do a little bit of statistic here and you managed to raise 4.2. I already said that previously, but how many meetings and how many investors do you need to get in touch with to be able to close such a round? Just so I can note it down to my little statistic sheet. I have to say, I have never actually made the exact count, but for, I would say, 30 to 40. That's that's quite a number. I usually hear from people that, you know, some, some of them, they go to three-digit numbers, and that's where it gets really, really time-consuming. But it seems like you managed to pick the right ones to, to approach. We also kind of, like, had the strategy of, like, so we, we kind of, like, tried to put the investors in tiers for ourselves and like first do a bit of dry runs with the ones that we were not like super eager to work with but like would still have been first nice to work with them and then after that we spoke basically with the ones that we really wanted to work with so we kind of like made sure that we are not just doing like outreach to all of them all together but learn throughout the process build the dynamic through the process and yeah, I worked in VC before, so that was a bit of an advantage in terms of like understanding how, how the processes work. Oh, yeah, I've seen it inside out. That's definitely a big benefit. What, just to set a benchmark, you are a very, very young startup. You have managed to close a decent round. What did you have in your hands when you were closing the funds? And how like big portion of the product do you need to have to be able to go and fundraise in your opinion? So we had an MVP ready and with that MVP we had traction. We closed a couple of large partnerships. Um, we were having interest from some large applications as design partners. So I would say we kind of like had the very clear signal of being onto something and not just completely off, off the rails. Plus we showed kind of like initial signals in terms of being able to hire or attract people that want to work with us that are that are basically really really talented and, and high profile i think that was very helpful as well and then a third thing for sure is like so i said we went through entrepreneur first and entrepreneur first has a good reputation in the market being kind of like doing a good selection process you know that kind of helps in terms of getting trust faster or earlier on 
So basically having three pillars, one of them, the very initial traction with the MVP, having a strong team with some potential people that were really interested to join and then being part of that accelerator. I feel like this is a great tip for other people that might be listening or or watching how they should think about their fundraising strategy and what needs to be ready and whatnot. And of course, like everyone can raise at different times, right? For some people, uh, it's easy because they just go show their face and say, I'm I'm doing my next thing. And and the investors are throwing money at them for, for other people. I think that there needs to be a lot more tangibility when it comes to the idea, the product and the traction as well. Totally. And, and I think at the end of the day, it comes down to a lot of like how much trust can can investors also build with the founders and then it's similar to like dating you know like when you date someone if you have like a social proof from your friends already that that person is like a really cool person and like super nice and ambitious or like whatever traits and values you're looking for right then probably the whole dating process is faster and more successful than if you just bump into a random person and you have kind of like you need to figure out everything by yourself yeah, right that 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 is 100% right so you have been like working on this for quite a bit after the initial MVP. What's been the, the, the progress up until now? What are all the things that you have managed to accomplish now? So first of all, we grew the team. So coming back to that, from, from like the point of starting the fundraise to, to now, we grew from basically being two and a half to now really being six people in the core team and, and also working with, for example, a team at STRV, which helped us to deliver where we are today. And we, on the product side, we basically, we, we scrapped everything that we had for the alpha. Like we literally took the whole thing and threw it away because we knew, okay, we need to start to really build the infrastructure from a, on a much more scalable and robust level. So we threw it all away and we completely rebuilt it. And we are there now that we have delivered the beta version. We are supporting now six chains. We supported only two with the alpha. We are basically able to, to build very complex queries, but very intuitively. So we also spend a lot of time on kind of like making sure that it's very easy to use and not doesn't need to kind of like, you don't need to learn some new language or whatever. You don't even need to write any codes. Like you don't need, even need to read, you need to, don't need to be able to write SQL or so, you know, you can very intuitively build queries that still can be very complex. And that was something that was not able in the alpha or the MVP before that is now possible with the, with the bit. Yeah, of um, course, we were very happy with being able to, to help you out with building some of the tech as well. So always thrilled to, yeah, just give a helping hand. <laughs> and yeah, so so that was kind of like on the product side and it helped us a lot. And then, of course, also in terms of like the progress in general, like we're now speaking with a lot more players thinking about, okay, how they can use us in their workflow and in their daily stack. And, and so, of course, also on the go-to-market side, we now started to get much more active. So, like, what would be your advice for someone who is just about to start their startup or is in the early stages about navigating the product journey? What are some of the tips and tricks that you would suggest for building a killer product? So, I think, so, first of all, one of the most useful tips that I got, and I got it from multiple different very successful entrepreneurs, is just not giving up, like simply keep going. So even if things are hard and one has to kind of like switch directions, the ones that simply keep going already outperform 90% of the others that stop. Um, so that is, I think, a very useful and helpful tip. Another advice that I 
personally have learned throughout the last year is that a lot of advice is bullshit. So uh, just because someone experienced something and now thinks that he or she knows it all doesn't mean that it is applicable into your situation at all. So always taking advice with a bit of grain of salt. I think these are the two main things that, that I feel turns out to be true over the last year. Yeah, and like it's also said that sometimes 80% of the success is just showing up, right? And you are already be beating the competition. And I think a friend of mine, Ryan Rotman, who is uh, an actor turned into tech entrepreneur, was sharing me the story about going to auditions. And like, if you show up for an audition, you are already beating 80% of the people. And if you prepare for that audition, then you are beating basically everybody. So that's an interesting story right there as well. But you mentioned the perseverance, just sticking with doing what you are doing. And what would you say was so far the hardest moment of navigating the product further? some of the challenges and obstacles so we don't just talk about what are the shiny things and the successes i think one of like the hardest things so far on the on the product development side was actually taking the decision that we that we throw the alpha like the mvp away because we spent some time on it right so uh, it wasn't like we didn't uh, we didn't put resources into it but it was a necessary decision but humans always like to be attached to things that they put time into it, you know, and resources into it. So that was a hard one, I think. The second one also, and I think especially at the beginning when you're a small team and you, you start fundraising, is balancing your time fundraising and, and, and building. Because fundraising is a full-time job. And you at the same time want to create progress, right? You don't want to stop your business for like two months to fundraise. So I think that was also actually a hard part in terms of like navigating that well and, and we did that at the end of the day very well in the way how we split responsibilities in the team but i think we, we had a two weeks time or three weeks time where we're like oh fuck actually we, we didn't achieve progress except for progress in the fundraising. well progress somewhere that that counts too but you shared a very interesting perspective on the decision like whether or not to start building from scratch right and i feel like this is what happens in tech very, very often that if you want to build a quick proof of concept, you will likely go about it differently than when you are like very clear that you are building something that is meant to stay long term. And like that, it's not just the emotional attachment that you create to the product. It's also the investment that you put down into it and then just the thought that you have okay i've already invested so much now do i have to go and throw it away and start from scratch but at the same time i think that you are really gaining the clarity in terms of what you want to build and that means that when you actually go and start building it from scratch there is many many efficiencies that you can find that it's not gonna take you the same time it took you to build the previous version, right? It's like there is a lot of shortcuts and fast tracks that will that will get you there. And in the end, I think from time to time, you just need to be able to make this decision. And I think that like if you are on a path that you keep improving something and you take care of your technical debt 
on a daily, weekly, and monthly basis, then you will likely not end up in a situation that you need to start from scratch, right? Just throw away the code and build something new. But at the same time, if you let something sit for a while, or if you just don't take care of the technical depth uh, uh, and so on, then like this is inevitable. Sooner or later, all the companies do it. They just need to replace their legacy systems. So it's an interesting pr- perspective that if you are building a proof of concept, you should also not be like thinking about like, this needs to scale forever, but this is something that will get us to the next point, And then we go from there. Exactly. Like, so, and then sometimes it's, it's like to make one step backward, it's kind of like pushes you two steps forward afterwards. So we, we frequently kind of also think about right now in the, in the process, okay, should we take a bit of time, like two, three days for refactoring, or we keep kind of like building on top, right? And sometimes it makes sense to do a bit of like, okay, let's quickly kind of like the cool down period, do a bit of refactoring so that it actually speeds up in the next weeks again. Okay, that's it. That's the, that's the approach. Taking a step back so you can make two steps forward. In terms of like aiming forward, what's what's next for Blocktorch? What is on your plate right now and where you would like to take it right after? So for us, kind of like the next steps are really building, like not building use cases, but kind of like making sure that bigger teams like with the SARM partners start actually really using Blocktorch in, in like their daily workflows or like their weekly workflows and really becoming a part of their used tech stack. And with that, learning a lot from them. So we're still in a, in a strong learning phase. We, we kind of like need to iterate over the product towards achieving product market fit. You know, the holy grail that, that all startups kind of like early on try to find. And so for us, it's all about maximizing learnings, maximizing the, the, the progress towards maximum valuable product to our user group. And for us, we are right now not, not super focused on monetization or so like we are developer tools we have like the split of users who are developers and then maybe the buyers like nowadays often developers have budget and, and they can just purchase software and tools they need but often those are kind of like needs to then go through other departments in the organization but for us right now it's all about the user so for us it's all about making sure we really understand are we solving the pains of developers in the right way or how do we need to iterate over our current beta solution to make it as valuable, as amazing, and as lovable and sticky as possible. Do you feel like the cooldown in the Web3 space is going to be limiting your growth potential that you will need to attract, like you will kind of need to wait until the next cycle that brings in a lot of people come? Or how, how do you think this affects your future? I believe one cannot time a market. Because nobody knows when is the next actually hype cycle coming, right? So, so that would I don't kind certainly of be a I don't know it. <laughs> yeah, like, so so I think nobody can know. So one cannot really time that. So it's more about navigating the the current market. Is it limiting us in our growth potential? I think we're at a point in time where not like at a serious A stage where you need to show okay you know the channels and then you turn on certain certain processes and you scale. We are actually at the earlier stage. And in that earlier stage, I believe the current size of the market should still be more than large enough for us to reach next milestones, proving more of our points and hypotheses, de-risking more sides of the business, 
And then we'll need to see, like, nobody can look into the future and say, okay, this is, this is when, when time will, will come and the market will, will grow like hell. But for us, it's our mission to no matter what the stage of the market is, we need to keep building, growing, learning, and reach those next milestones. And then for sure, at some point, the market will reward us also with, with like a much stronger growth or a much more optimistic outlook than it is today. Oh, yeah. And uh, like we have talked a lot about Web3, blockchain, BlockTorch, everything. What are uh, some of the tech trends that interest you outside of Web3, if, if any? Like where do you like to spend your time when you want to not be fully surrounded with what you are building? So on the one hand, of course, everything that is somehow AI and a- enabling and AI enabled right now is hot and everybody kind of plays around with, with AI. We do internally, we do also on, on the sides and, and all of us do it, I think also hobby-wise to see, okay, what, what can AI achieve right now and how can AI be used in the, in the most usable or, or valuable way. And outside of that, I personally, like from a pure non-business perspective, are very much into kind of like sports and everything, how tech can, can actually help you become a not maybe better person is, is the wrong word, but a stronger human. So everything that is kind of like a bit biohacking inspired, tracking all kind of metrics of your of yourself and, and, and like improving over that and experimenting with it. What is the piece of health tech that you think the humanity needs the most right now? What would you wish for? So I personally be- strongly believe better understanding our digestive health can make a massive difference. And I know there are already kind of like a couple of startups where you can kind of like measure your blood sugar levels and, and better understand what kind of foods basically leads to spikes and, and, and which ones you better, you're better with digesting and so on. But honestly, I think that it is for me not accessible enough. You know, I can, I can track my heart rate and my blood pressure and my sleep behavior, but the digestive track is actually very, very important for a person's immune system and, and health in general and well-being. And I think it is not super understood yet for a B2C use case in terms of like, okay, am I eating the right things? Am I eating the wrong things? Am I eating, eating at, the, say, at the right times? Do I need more fasting? How can I basically improve my overall human capacity? Yeah, that is so true. I've been monitoring my glucose levels for three years now. And I can tell you, like, of course, like I have a, I have a reason to, to do so. And it's not just curiosity, but like what it taught me that like if I eat later in the day, it just has a terrible impact on my sleep and pretty much everything else. If I eat very early in the day, uh, I feel amazing. And if I do a lot of intermittent fasting, it also helps me tremendously to keep my blood sugar levels very, very stable. and. Like, I would 100% support what you said that, like, even like, you know, these sensors that you can leverage today, they are not accessible enough. But, like, myself personally, I can't wait to the day when we will be able to monitor not just blood glucose, but hopefully a lot of other indicators just with a device that we'll wear on our wrist. And I think that time is coming, but we just don't know when, but hopefully soon. 
Well, Gary, thank you so much for hopping on the show. I have had a pleasure chatting with you. Thanks for the invitation. I will monitor closely your journey and we'll definitely be in touch. Thanks, Lou. We'll be in touch. All right. Have a good one. Thanks for listening to this episode. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please follow us on whatever platform you use to listen to podcasts. And we'll be thankful if you leave us a review. That's it for now. Till next time on the Next Level Show.